What might the fictional worlds of C.S. Lewis's Narnia and Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings teach us about the stewardship of creation? Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and our guest today on the show is Kristen Page, who's here to talk about her new IVP into Varsity Press America book called The Wonders of Creation, Learning Stewardship from Narnia and Middle Earth. Kristen is Ruth Craft Strohshine Distinguished Chair and Professor of Biology at Wheaton College, Illinois in the States. Her work is in numerous scholarly journals, including the Journal of Wildlife Management, Journal of Parasitology, and Emerging Infectious Diseases. And she finds herself now writing about Lewis and Tolkien. So let's find out why. Kristen, hi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Now, I'm assuming that, and indeed I know because I've read your book, that all this academic work on wildlife diseases and landscape has formed the background of this book on Lewis and Tolkien. But why were you drawn to write about stewardship in the works of Lewis and Tolkien? I was invited to be the Ken and Jean Hansen lecturer at the Wade Center at Wheaton College. And um, they invited me as the first natural scientist to be part of the series. And I had been using... Tolkien in my ecology class to give students an opportunity to practice thinking about ecosystems and describing them. And if they have a written description in front of them, they tend to do better at understanding ecosystem principles in the classroom. So that is what led me to being interested in thinking about if we spend time in fictional landscapes, it might help us to appreciate real landscapes a bit more. Yes, I was fascinated by this. I'd, I'd never thought of this before, but what can fictional landscapes teach us about our own landscape and uh, indeed about our own planet? I think for people who don't spend time outside, who don't take an opportunity to go for a, a walk in the forest, but do read fiction, it almost gives you the same experience. If you're really immersed into a fictional landscape, you can feel the wind blowing. You can hear the leaves rustling, you can experience the profound silence of the of the um, of these places that um, Lewis and Tolkien describe in their works of fiction or anybody's fiction for that matter. And I feel like it's a good place. It's a place that I learned to explore landscapes. I think if I remember back in my childhood, I definitely looked for places in the out of doors that mirrored the places that I read in books. And then I looked for books that mirrored the places that I knew out of doors. Were Lewis's and Tolkien's fictional landscapes, because they're extremely evocative landscapes, aren't they? Particularly in Tolkien. As we sit here and talk, I'm remembering reading about all the forests in The Lord yes. of the Rings and how evocative and how wonderful and almost magical these descriptions are. But were there fictional landscapes based on real landscapes and real places that they knew and walked in and loved? I think that they definitely were influenced by the real places that Lewis and Tolkien spent time. They had to have been. I read a lot about Tolkien's ideas about his Middle Earth, his sub-creation, and he, would, he wouldn't go as far to say that it was Earth, but it was a place where we understood our Earth. We could understand that landscape because of where we come from. And and likewise, um, Lewis was always looking for beauty in the world. Even before he came to faith, he was looking for beauty because beauty is where he had an experience, probably the closest thing that he could understand to love prior to coming to faith. And so he spent, both of them spent a lot of time outdoors. 
um, from childhood through adulthood. And some of it in their adulthood, they spent together outdoors Mm. and um, walking and hiking and exploring. And I feel like all of these places that they explored through from childhood through adulthood certainly influenced these landscapes that they created as they were writing their fiction. Yeah, one of one of them, I think both of them were keen gardeners, weren't they? I think Lewis certainly was a keen gardener. I don't know about Tolkien. Tolkien loved trees and his <laughs> mom taught him bot- botany as a child. And so he was very, and he drew a lot of trees. If you, if you look at his art, a lot of what he spent time drawing were trees. And he, he really got a lot of the botany right in his drawings and his understanding. And Lewis also really loved um, plants as well. And he, he spent a lot of time exploring the outdoors. Um, I, I like to think about um, a letter that I wrote, uh, I, that I read that, that Lewis had written um, where he was describing going for a walk with Tolkien. And he was, he was suggesting that um, Tolkien was going to really slow them down. <laughs> and um, <laughs> because Tolkien likes to stop and look at things. And when you spend time in, in both of their um, works of fiction, so when you're in Lewis's fiction, at least for me, I get a more landscape view. I, I feel like we get grand vistas and we understand kind of maybe a map view of his landscapes. But when you're in Tolkien's worlds, I mean, everybody's experienced it. Everybody that loves Tolkien knows that it can take a little while to get somewhere because we have to explore all of the detail along the way. And and I think that that's very reminiscent of the ways that both of them spent time in real life out of doors. Mm. I'm going to come and ask you in a minute what fascinates you about landscape, but um, just pursuing the theme about Tolkien and trees, which I can't resist doing because um, Tolkien has very slow trees. Of course, in The Lord of the Rings, if people have seen the movies or read the books, we have the Ents who are very slow to reach conclusions about things and can teach us a lot of things, I think Ents can. But how are trees important in the stories of Lewis and Tolkien? Well, especially in Tolkien, trees are, well, Tolkien says in one of his letters that he always takes the side of the trees. Yes. The side of the forest. And and so I think that um, when we're in forests and when we're experiencing trees, sometimes they're actually characters in the book, you know, like Old Man Willow teaches a lot about how maybe uh, teaches me about how we harm forests and forests have memory, at least in um, in Middle Earth, they have memory. And I think that many would argue that we can experience the memory of a forest as we as we walk through a real forest and look at it as an ecologist. Um, the more we understand about the ecology of forests, the more we actually understand that they hold the memory of the place, just like Tolkien did with his fiction. Maybe just a bit more obvious in Tolkien's fiction than going for a walk in the forest. Tolkien's forests, so when you're in, in the old forest with Old Man Willow, it's very ominous and, and the, the hobbits are, are quite afraid, right? And they feel like the forest is against them and maybe they don't even understand why. But as a reader, you get a sense that there's been some harm done against this forest and the forest is not trusting those that are moving through that maybe don't belong there. But then they, they move on in their journey and they um, have this terrible trauma um, where they lose one of the fellowship. And um, I'm just teaching a class where students are reading it for the first time. So I'm careful about spoiler alerts, but they lose, they lose someone they care very much for. And where do they, um, where do they recover? They recover in La Florian in this beautiful forest that's also very old and also holds quite a bit of memory 
but it's a different kind of memory. It's a memory of restoration. And, but it, for Tolkien, forests transform the characters, regardless of which forest you're in. Mirkwood um, has been transformed. And as the Ents start to realize um, how terrible Sauron's effect on Mirkwood has been, they start to react to the transformation of Mirkwood and they are transformed and they are brought to action um, because of, of what's happened in Mirkwood and their memory of what that forest had been. Yes, yeah, so forests and landscapes transform characters. I think you write about that in the book, don't you? The, the landscapes of Lewis and Tolkien transform characters as they pass on their journeys. Yes, I believe so. I mm. think so. And some, and some of the characters are changed quite um, remarkably. Thinking of Lothlorien, do trees have intelligence? Well, I guess that def depends on how you define intelligence. Some people would say that they're sentient beings. Certainly, if you would define intelligence as an organism that's responding to its environment, yes, they're intelligent. They respond to the environment. Um, they can communicate. They can produce chemicals that inform other trees or plants around them about being under attack from a predator, or um, they can share nutrients. And trees trees can actually share nutrients with the trees, the seedlings that are most related to them. They share with every tree, but they will especially share with their kin. So I think that if we define intelligence as a reaction to the environment, uh, a way of actually responding to very specific cues, then they do have a type of intelligence. I read uh, this morning when I was researching, doing some research for this interview in, I think it was National Geographic, that uh, trees can make, uh, can let people know if they're, if they're experiencing drought. They, they have noises associated with, we would associate with pain. Yes, I've, I've read about that too. I think it's fascinating that, that plants emit sounds we don't necessarily always cue into them, but the scientists that are looking for them have found them and they've related those sounds to maybe a cry for help or even um, a way to promote the growth of their offspring of the seedlings. And that's something I'm really interested in and in reading more about. It's fascinating. I, I was astonished to learn this. Hence my next question. Do trees make music? I think so. I um, am really interested in this new area of ecology called soundscape ecology. It's not terribly new, but um, it's in the, you know, the past 20 years or so, many people have been doing it longer, but um, people go out and they record the soundscape and what are the sounds that are around us and how might they influence us or how might they um, explain to us something about biodiversity of the place I heard a recording made by an artist who um, does a lot of the soundscape recording and she put a microphone down into a crack in a tree and left it there. And it was the most beautiful music. It was so beautiful. Um, it was tonal and there were, per there was percussion. And then also, I mean, going out into the forest this time of year in, in North America, it's fall and um, all the leaves are dropping and it's, just the most beautiful fall I've seen, I think, ever. It's just gorgeous. And, and it's been very windy. And I can hear the sound of the trees. And they, and they, as they move with the wind, they are, they're making pitches. It's not just noise. It's music to me. Someone said, suggested, I think, again, I'm relying on my memory, that uh, they, emit, they emit lower harmonic sounds, don't they? 
Yes, I I read that. What, um, picture, what some picture, of, picture are they on? Did I read that a they're on a four forty or am I just? I, no, they're on two twenty. So they're on two twenty. Yeah. So they're not quite tuned to our orchestras. Which well, it depends. Maybe. Some orchestras, some orchestras tune to to four forty. Yeah. Um, so an octave higher, and others tune to four forty one. But it's an A, and I think it's just really interesting that instruments made of wood. Wood. Yes, of course. Tune to a pitch that the wood makes when it's alive. Yes, of course. I'd never thought of that. Wow, that's just awesome, isn't it? Absolutely incredible. It's really incredible. I'm going to just pursue this with with another question because you write, I've always gravitated towards forests, you write, and I think I've always connected to them deeply. Now, what is it that's always appealed to you about landscape? And I think you've probably already partly answered this. But what is it that's always appealed to you about landscape and what's appealed to you about forests? Well, I think that I just feel calm and at peace when I'm in a forest. And I think it's something about the way the light filters through the leaves. Lewis calls that God light. I love that. And I like the smells and I like the sounds. I've just always felt at peace there. And I grew up in the southeastern part of the United States. And um, I can just remember being in, well, the pine forests, primarily um, where I, I had spent most of my formative years. But when I was younger, we had we lived in a region that had more hardwoods in it. And I can remember my first exposure to sassafras mm -hmm. and, and um, someone crushing the leaf for me and realizing, gosh, that smells like root beer. So then every time I was back in a forest after that, I just tuned into the smells and the sounds and I don't know, it just brings me peace. And when I'm quiet in a forest, it's, it's like, you know, the psalmist says, be still and know that I'm God. And I feel like that's where I, can really know God. It just reorients me. So what can Lewis and Tolkien then teach us about the stewardship of creation? I think that Lewis and Tolkien teach us, first of all, to, to look at creation. And so they spent a lot of time looking at creation so they could create their own, as Tolkien said, sub-creation, right? And, um, you know, they do, they did take from reality and some of the species that we have in our real world exist in their fictional worlds, but they also were creative and made their own species as well. And I think that um, just being in fictional landscapes teaches us to wonder. It teaches us to be more observant and to recognize important relationships between people and plants or non-human non characters that were in their stories. And the way that they sort out these relationships and the importance of, of place to those um, characters. And I think that that teaches us a lot about how we need to be in the world to think, I think forests teach us a lot about how to be with each other. You know, I write a lot about developing a land ethic. And if you're, if you can develop a land ethic an ethic for all that God has created, part of that is recognizing that you're created and that you're part of this creation. And when you recognize that you are creaturely and you have this embodied spirituality, like our spirituality is tied to us as creatures, you need to recognize that, that um, your impact on creation impacts others, not just, not just people, but other species, but it ultimately hinders our ability to love our neighbor, whether we are talking about our human neighbor, 
which is really, really what I'm talking about in the book, um, the vulnerable, whether it's our human neighbors that are vulnerable or our non-human neighbors that are vulnerable. I think that Tolkien and Lewis, it, it, to me, it seems like they cared very much about justice and they cared very much about caring for the vulnerable. The vulnerable characters in their stories often were important to the story and often were protected in surprising ways and heroic in, in surprising ways. And mm. I think that um, that tells us a lot about the way that we need to be in the world. Both men, I think, were really quite forward thinking. I mean, people tend to think of them as looking backwards. But I, the more I read and learn about them, I think they were years ahead of their time in, in a lot of the themes they explored. Now, for example, uh, sustainable sustainability. I mean, you write about the hobbits in The Lord of the Rings. How do the hobbits represent a sustainable use model of stewardship, do you think? Well, the hobbits live in a, an agrarian society. And um, now they weren't perfectly sustainable, but they were more sustainable than many of the other um, groups in that we read about in, in Middle Earth or that we know of in the real world. Um, they, they had smaller scale agriculture. Um, they grew what they needed and not a lot more than that. Now with the scouring of the Shire, we see that they've moved beyond that and, and that the ideas of consuming more, as Bill McKibben calls it, the orthodoxy of more, this need for more and more and more, it sneaks up on us. It sneaks up on the privilege. It snuck up on the hobbits. And it was happening before the fellowship left. But when they returned to the Shire and they saw the impact of this orthodoxy of more, it was heartbreaking. And I think that, um, you know, Sam, when he comes back, he realizes that gosh, we've gone past sustainability, but he doesn't give up hope. He works towards restoring the Shire, but he does realize that his work is going to take generations. And that's also an important part of stewardship, understanding that we're not going to, we're not going to correct things immediately, but if we don't start to work on stewardship and, and, and posturing ourselves towards a better way of using resources and living in the world, then future generations will be harmed. And Sam, I think Sam taught us that. Sam's absolutely horrified, isn't he, when they get back to the Shire and, spoiler alert, finds that Saruman has had all the beautiful trees cut down. He goes and he gets into a right rage about it all and says something like, my beautiful trees, Mr. Frodo, they've cut them all down. It's always stuck with me since I was a boy. Mm -hmm. uh, so Tolkien writes about deforestation, in effect. Yes, yes. He does. And so does Lewis. I mean, if you if you look in um, Lewis, you'll read about the trees are all cut and the dryad comes um, to Tyrion and and is like, oh, no, come and help. You know, woe is us. Well, you know, we're we're dying. We're dying. And um, the tr realizing kind of too late that the trees are gone. Lewis Lewis also has a very famous poem about deforestation, about the future. It's called the future of forestry. And it's about England with no trees left. And how do you teach children about trees when there are no trees left? And um, it's it was very um, profound to me to read that poem. I thought that it was very forward thinking. It was almost like the the um, the song, you know, we pave paradise and put up a parking lot. But it was written it was written well before that song. Why do you write that? And I'm quoting from you here. Why do you write that humility joined with wonder? Humility joined with wonder is an essential response to the current ecological crisis. Why should we have humility joined with wonder? And how's that going to help us out of the current 
ecological crisis, do you think? Well, I think that it's going to write our attitudes and help us to develop a land ethic. Humility, because much of the pressure put on ecosystems is put on ecosystems from the privileged. And the vulnerable of the world are the ones that unfortunately bear the brunt of the effects. And so if we don't humble ourselves and realize that we can't science ourselves out of this damage, eventually we're going to harm the ecosystem to a point where science might not help us recover. In fact, science isn't helping a lot of parts of the world recover. And so we have to, we have to be humble and realize that actually maybe we don't have to buy into this orthodoxy of more we can step back and use less. And you know, I, I think that the privileged of the world are really good at not seeing the damage that we cause because unjustly we push it off onto neighborhoods that we aren't a part of or parts of the world where we don't go. And the climate is changing as a result of the wealthy's overuse of many resources. And we live in parts of the world that aren't going to be harmed as much by climate change, frankly. And so I think that humility is critical. Wonder should get us at this place where we want to care about the world. Wonder is, you know, when you really wonder, you're, it's not just, wow, that's beautiful. It's, it's a change. You, you realize how small you are and how, um, how you're part of creation. And you realize that you really want to change when you see how amazing and beautiful and intricate creation is. And yeah. yeah. I, so. think, I think we've lost that really in many ways. I think we've become almost uh, removed from creation, from nature in, in, in a sense. And we, we tend to think of animals and plants as things. Uh, and I mean, it always amazes me how people seem to underestimate the intelligence of animals. Uh, whereas it's quite evident to anyone who's owned a, an animal, <laughs> or the animals owned you, I think, probably, um, yes. uh, that they are very and remarkably intelligent and emotional creatures as well. Yes. They have yes. feelings. I'm quite certain of that. I think so, too. Yes. There's a whole movement now of teaching dogs to communicate with buttons. Have you seen this? Yes. So I've they'll put it. these buttons out and, and the, the dogs can um, communicate with their owners and yeah. Um, I think it shows us a lot about, <laughs> kind of gives us insight into what they're thinking. But I'm a dog owner, and I know that my dog is pretty smart, and he oh, can yeah. definitely manipulate me. Yes, I have a uh, I have a, a dear friend who has a dog, and um, I'm I'm very fond of the dog, and she's definitely extremely intelligent. It mm -hmm. makes you aware of it every day, just about. Now, uh, last question, maybe: How can we enjoy the presence of God in creation? So many ways everybody's different. And so I think that um, first we realize that God came to this earth and existed here in an embodied way as Christ. And he enjoyed his creation here on earth. And that's really special. I think that um, if you understand that our call to steward is really a call to care for the place where God dwells, and then realize that he God dwelled here with us. He dwells here with us. And we're caring for his temple um, more than just managing resources so that we can use them and 
and feed people, if you realize that you're really caring for God's temple, I think that that really changes the way that you think about stewardship. I experience God in creation um, because I hear the music. I hear creation singing his praises. Um, I think other people might not share that experience with me, but maybe they've just never thought about it before. Scriptures tell us that creation sings God's praises. And so I, I realize that's poetry, but I, I really do hear music and um, worship and, and joy when I'm in his creation. And it doesn't have to just be forests. There are plenty of beautiful places in the world where people can experience wonder and um, joy and know God's presence with them in his creation. Mm. Kristen Page, thank you so much for a fascinating discussion. I've learned heaps. Uh, the book is called The Wonders of Creation, Learning Stewardship from Narnia and Middle-Earth, and there are contributions by Christina Bieber-Lake, Noah J. Tolley, and Emily Hunter-McGowan. We should say this is based on a lecture series that you gave, isn't it? Yes, it is. The Hanson Lectureship. The Hanson, yeah. The Wade and, Center at, at the Wade Center at, at Wheaton College. Yes, and the Wade, the Wade uh, has uh, the, am I right in thinking it's just about the largest collection of um, manuscripts and books of Dorothy L. Sayers and Tolkien and Lewis. And if I remember rightly, from one of my other interviews, you can actually see the wardrobe which yes. Lewis owned. Yes. Yes, and Tolkien's desk. <laughs> and Tolkien's desk, yes. So uh, there it is. Wonders of Creation, Learning Stewardship from Narnia and Middle-Earth. It's published by IVP, InterVarsity Press in America. It's a wonderful read. You'll have your eyes opened to things you may never have considered before. And that's what happened to me when I read it. So, Kristen, thank you so much. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor our podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Kristen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. That's a pleasure. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.